0: i Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices.
1: Each week, we
0: explore the beliefs shaping our world. Summer, it's a time when lots of folks gather, including faith groups. And many of these gatherings take place without generating a single headline. But for Southern Baptists, it tends to be a different story for the last few years. And this year was no different. A few weeks before their national convention in Anaheim, California, the denomination's leadership was back in the news. This time, it was the release of a report detailing evidence of mishandling of sexual abuse allegations over the last two decades. The report was conducted by GuidePost Solutions, a third-party commissioned by the denomination at their conference last year in 2021, to conduct a deep investigation. And that decision was fueled by the outcry inside and outside the denomination after the Houston Chronicle published Abuse of Faith, a six-part investigative story. Among this year's gathering of 8,000 delegates— were a lot of reporters, including the Associated Press's global religion reporter, Deepa Barat. She joins me this week to talk about the reaction to the report that detailed how the executive committee protected abusers and tried to silence accusers. And she shares some of the reaction and decisions. She also offers insights gathered from the collaborative reporting team that included Peter Smith, Holly Meyer, and David Crary. But before we jump into the top story, Thipa offers a little background on the denomination.
1: The Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. They are descended from Baptists who settled in the American colonies in the 17th century, and then they formed their own denomination in 1845, after a rift with their northern counterparts over the issue of slavery. Uh, That's an important detail, I think, as we move forward. As of 2020, the denomination had more than 47,000 churches and 14.5 million members. So this denomination is massive. 14.5
0: million members. There's a lot of discussion about those numbers declining, but still, that's a really big number. It's a sizable portion of, of the electorate.
1: Yeah, and we are going to get into the declining numbers a little later as we talk about the future. But uh, one important thing to know about the SBC is that it is not a centralized church like the Roman Catholic Church. It's a fellowship of congregations of all sizes located in different parts of the country from large cities to rural areas. So it consists of mega churches like Pastor Rick Warren Saddleback in Orange County to tiny little churches like Royal and Baptist Church in Diasburg, Tennessee, where in 2020, the attendance was like 50 people. So that's like the range you have in the SBC. And what makes SBC meetings so unique is also how they're held. So if you can imagine a city council or county board of supervisors meeting and multiply it by a thousand times, this was my first SBC meeting. So it was a, an initiation and an education for me. The floor, when you just go in, is like so huge.
2: Is there a point of order?
1: My point of order is with the original question, so I will wait until the amendment.
2: Thank you. Is there another
0: point of order? Ask if there's anyone to speak against the amendment. All right. Is there anyone to speak against the amendment at this point?
1: And with more than 8,000 delegates that they call messengers, and there are microphones placed in several aisles so delegates can come up and express their views, raise concerns, and ask questions, and then they follow Robert's rules of order. So my
0: amendment is the recommendation from the committee to change the indefinite article A to the word any, to add a parenthesis S after recommendation, so it could be singular or plural, depending upon what the task force would determine. And then the definite article V before office of pastor, strike everything office of pastor to the end and insert... So it's a
1: democratic process, of which the is like fascinating to watch.
0: Southern Baptist Convention. Article 3, Section 1, Subsection.
1: And going back to who the Southern Baptists are, they still remain heavily concentrated in the South. And according to Pew Research Center, SBC figures show that 81% of its members live in the region, including about 2.7 million in Texas, and more than a million each in Georgia and North Carolina. The vast majority of Southern Baptists are white, about 85%, with few black members, 6%, and even fewer Latinos than Asians, like 3%. Or under So what I saw was reflective of those numbers. Um, the Southern Baptists are more conservative than their general U.S. population on a majority of the social issues, and sometimes even more so than other evangelicals. For example, a vast majority are against abortion, homosexuality, women taking over the role of pastor, and again, a significant majority say they're against critical race theory. I'm going to put that in quotes. Yeah. Um, Southern Baptists also tend to lean Republican and some lean even further right. And all of that played a really big part in the presidential election at this year's convention in Anaheim and also how they are poised to move forward in the future. Well, let's get into the
0: guidepost report. So if you're not a member of the Southern Baptist Convention and you saw some of the headlines, you heard about an explosive report that had a lot of critical findings that exposed some deep challenges facing this denomination. Can you talk a little bit about that guidepost report and what were some of the key issues that it raised? Hmm.
1: I think explosive is a good word. I think bombshell was a word that was used a lot. A new 288 page report by independent firm Guidepost
0: Solutions alleges that the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee was stonewalling survivors. After the report, SBC leaders released a secret database listing accused pastors and church staff spanning decades.
1: The Guidepost report followed an investigation spanning seven months. How it started was an overwhelming majority of Southern Baptist voting delegates or messengers, as they call them, not just authorized it, but demanded it. A third-party investigation into the mishandling of sexual abuse claims over the last 20 years. And this happened during the SBC's annual meeting in Nashville last year in 2021. And the report was released to the public on May 22nd, last month. And it talked about how the SBC's executive committee and thousands of its rank and file members stonewalled and denigrated survivors of sex abuse over the last two decades while seeking to protect their own interests and reputation. And the main finding of this investigation was that for many years, a few senior executive committee leaders, along with outside counsel, largely controlled the committee's response to these reports of abuse and were singularly focused on avoiding liability for the SBC. And the report assessed, asserts most importantly that the executive committee uh, maintained, actually a staffer for the executive committee, maintained a secret list of more than 800 Baptist ministers accused of abuse. Uh, and But the report also said there's no indication anyone took any action to ensure that the accused ministers were no longer in positions of power at SBC churches. So that was a really powerful finding of the report, and the report recommended it had some key recommendations. So one, it said form an independent commission and later establish a permanent administrative entity to oversee comprehensive long-term reforms concerning sexual abuse and related misconduct. Number two, it said create and maintain an offender information system, a database, to alert the community to known offenders. And three, provide a comprehensive resource toolbox, including protocols, training, education, And practical information. And finally, it said restrict the use of non-disclosure agreements and civil settlements, which bind survivors to confidentiality, reducing transparency. So within a couple of days after the guidepost report was published, the executive committee did release the previously secret list of abusers, redacting information about those who were not convicted or where allegations had not been fully investigated or confirmed. And once that report came out, once the guidepost report came out, the sexual abuse task force which messengers had also asked for at last year's meeting, made recommendations which delegates overwhelmingly approved during the Anaheim meeting this year. Those recommendations include creating a new task force. So the sexual abuse task force would be disbanded and a new task force would be created to implement the report's recommendations, uh, essentially making things more transparent by creating an open database of abusers. And this database would be a way to track pastors and other church workers who are credibly accused of sex abuse. And then the new task force would oversee further reforms uh, within the SBC. Um, I actually spoke with survivors, Jules Woodson and Tiffany Thigman, who were present in Anaheim wearing one of those turquoise uh, ribbons representing sex abuse survivors. And they were in tears, actually, when they saw so many hands go up in agreement to execute the task force's recommendations.
0: It's a really, really powerful moment. It sounds like it was. And I can only imagine what the atmosphere was like. That report that you just described, I mean, 800, that doesn't sound like just a handful of bad apples. It sounds like this is a problem that is more pervasive than folks realized.
1: Absolutely. And I think there was a painful recognition of that by by many delegates uh, who I spoke with on the floor and outside. The Guidepost report talked about how survivors spoke of trauma, not just from the initial abuse, Ambrine, but also about the debilitating effects that, uh, that come from the response of churches and institutions like the SBC that did not believe them, and, and then essentially ignored them, mistreated them, and failed to help them. So I think this year during the meeting, leaders and delegates alike really lamented this lack of compassion and care for the flock and resolved to do better as they go forward. And also the main problem according to the investigative report, is that because of SBC's polity, because of the way it's all organized, and because they don't have a centralized system, and because some people turn the other way, abusers were able to easily fly under the radar and go from congregation to congregation victimizing more people. And that is the route the denomination is essentially trying to stem right now.
0: When you were describing the recommendations in the Guidepost report, the folks at Guidepost, though, are not in charge of what the convention does next. The task force, I understand, is led by Bruce Frank and he had to play a role in moving the convention from that shock moment to like what the next steps
1: are. And I'm curious if there was resistance to all those next steps. Yeah. So, so the job of the sex, sexual abuse task force was essentially to make sure that guideposts had everything they needed first of all, to complete their investigation and then make the recommendations to delegates at the, at, at the annual meeting. Now that they've done that, the new president, Bart Barber, will appoint and bring together a new task force, which the messengers voted to form in Anaheim. And Barber has actually vowed to expedite that process. So Bruce Frank is the pastor of Biltmore Church in North Carolina and led the seven-member task force over the last year. And Frank made an emotional plea in Anaheim for delegates to accept the task force's recommendations. Today, we will choose between humility or hubris. We will choose between genuine repentance or continually being passive in our approach to sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. He called it the bare minimum, but doing more, it's going to take a long time because it's about changing the denomination's entire culture. And he challenged those who would say that these steps interfere with Baptist focus on missions or other objectives. He said this is about protecting the sheep from the wolves, and it's really essential to the denomination's mission. Here's an interesting question he asked the delegates, as some of them did express some resistance to these ideas. He asked them, how are you going to tell a watching world that Jesus died for them when his church won't even do its very best to protect them? I think that was a powerful question that, mm. you know, I saw a lot of heads nodding then. And I think a lot of them agreed with that. And on the last day of the meeting, the delegates adopted a resolution to publicly apologize for the harm that their actions and inactions caused to survivors of sexual abuse. And that shows that they were in agreement with Frank.
0: Was the apology enough
1: of a first step for the
0: survivors who were there, the folks that you talked to? Was the apology received in the way that it was delivered?
1: That's a great question, Ambreen. Um, I think the reaction was layered. I would call it layered because some survivors I spoke to said they were relieved to see this first step in the right direction because for several days, weeks, and months, they were not even sure if it was going to happen. Survivor Jules Woodson um, told me that this was not perfect, but it's a good start. And I think many survivors, including Krista Brown, uh, who was another vocal survivor, are acutely aware that they waited too long for these reforms. Uh, Brown said she was disappointed that they did not do more. Uh, she and others had sought a permanent commission to oversee compliance, but the delegates only voted to create a task force for one year, which they would then renew from year to year. Mm. She actually tweeted, I know people like happy endings, but I'm not feeling it. She said, I feel grief. It's better than nothing, but that's such a low bar.
0: Yeah. And I wonder, as you describe it, what I'm hearing you say is it's year by year. This has to be Mm -hmm. consistently sent back to the convention. And so that brings me to the question about leadership in the SBC. How influential is the president? How much power does he really have? Yeah,
1: the president's role is to protect the rights of the delegates by appointing a few key committees. So his his appointment should reflect the will of the messenger body. For example, the messengers adopted a statement of faith, which was last revised in the year 2000. And the president is required to appoint to committees those who affirm that statement of faith. But even with such a role, the power is decentralized in the SBC. For example, the president can appoint a committee on resolutions, right? But nothing passes without the approval of the messengers. So even though A president can appoint a committee on committees. That's a real thing in the SBC. And influence (laughs) the selection of trustees. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Uh, Influence the selection of trustees to govern the SBC's entities. Um, His appointment is three steps removed from the actual appointment of any trustee. Uh, And all trustees are eventually only appointed by the final vote of the messenger body. So the president is essentially accountable to the delegates. That's Mm. how it works.
0: And I understand that Barber's election could not be described as a landslide that he won after besting a Florida pastor in a runoff election. Mm -hmm. Can you describe the differences between the two, Barber and Askol?
1: So Bart Barber is a staunch Southern Baptist conservative. Um, He welcomed bans on abortion, opposes critical race theory, and believes that only men should serve as pastors. So he's conservative. There's no question about it. Yet he's called for people to shun divisive rhetoric and find common ground. Um, he's called for an army of peacemakers, at, within quotes, to help unite this divided denomination. Barber, he's 52 years old. He's pastor of First Baptist Church of Farmersville. Um, and he's the first SBC president who leads a small rural church with a weekly attendance of about 320
0: that means this is not mm-hmm. a mega church pastor. This is not like Rick no. Warren, um, no. the, uh, you know, or, or Robert Jeffers from Dallas. This is this is a, a pastor with a much smaller congregation. And
1: Askell, the pastor who he was running against in the runoff, so he's the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and and he he was viewed as someone who would take the denomination further to the right. And he was backed by the Conservative Baptist Network, which was formed in twenty twenty stemming from the belief that the SBC was moving forward, moving toward more progressive thinking and moving away from biblical values. So the theme of Aspel's candidacy was essentially, we have a book in quotes. His focus on the Bible um, has, has actually made him a vocal critic of the SBC. And he's spoken up against liberalism, CRT, uh, women preachers. He believes all these things are leading the SBC away from scripture. And he says the SBC is moving further toward liberalism, in an attempt to pander to the broader culture and attract more people to the church. Hmm. But what the delegates ended up doing, Ambreen, is interesting. They voted for someone who was more similar to the outgoing president, Ed Litton. Um, And and based on other elections that took place during the three days, it showed that the larger SBC community is not ready to move further, right? Not yet. Uh, That was evident in the election for the executive committee chair, the vice chair, and the secretary. So members of the executive committee um, on Monday, like a a day before the actual convention began, picked Texas Pastor Jared Wellman as their chair. Uh, They picked South Carolina Pastor David Sons as vice chair and Pamela Reed, who's a retired nurse from North Carolina, as as secretary during a meeting. And all three winners supported waiving the top administrative body's attorney-client privilege uh, to facilitate the guidepost investigation. Their challengers, the three challengers—Indiana Pastor Andrew Hunt, Louisiana Minister Philip Robertson, and Missouri Pastor Monty Schinkel—all opposed that. And last year, the executive committee was really embroiled in this heated debate about the issue of attorney-client privilege, disagreeing over whether to allow investigators to access access memos between lawyers and committee staff members. And ultimately, those who supported granting that access actually prevailed in October. And and Bruce Frank. And many others, including survivors, have said that this access really helped Guidepost to do a more robust investigation, a move that really proved to be crucial to the to the firm's work.
0: I'm talking with Deepa Bharat. She's a veteran religion reporter who, along with colleagues on the Associated Press Global Religion Team, covered this year's Southern Baptist Convention that took place in Anaheim, California, June 12th through the 14th. When we come back, Bharat describes how other trends, including the decline in numbers of the denomination, have caught the attention of leaders and have many wondering about the future of the nation's largest Protestant denomination. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. I'm Ambreen Khan, and if you're just joining, this week on Inspired by Interfaith Voices, I'm talking with religion reporter Deepa Bharat from the Associated Press's Global Religion team. Before the break, she described how 8,000 delegates at the Southern Baptist Convention gathered in Anaheim, California, a few weeks ago. How they reacted to the Guidepost Solutions report detailing the mishandling of sexual abuse allegations, and the impunity and secrecy that enabled pastors accused of abuse to continue in leadership positions. While the report from Guidepost Solutions offered a series of recommendations, Barath noted that the delegates, known as messengers, did not vote to implement most demands. But on the last day, they approved a formal and emotional public apology to sexual abuse survivors. Now, as we get back to the conversation, we turn to some of the other issues and challenges facing the denomination, including reports that as a fellowship, the overall numbers are in decline, the ongoing calls to address systemic racism, and the controversy over women holding the title of pastor in some churches. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, did you hear conversations about concerns about the brand of the Southern Baptist Convention or being Baptist um, or concerns over the changes to their demographics, specifically the decline in numbers? Were those things that
1: you heard about um, or saw evident
0: in the conference?
1: Well, I think a lot of people were definitely concerned about declining membership, right? I just have a few numbers here, like the annual baptisms to that 154,701 in 2021, which is a large number, but it was down 63% Mm. from their 1999 peak. And membership stood at 13.7 million, which was down by 16% from their 2006 peak. That's according to statistics from SBC's affiliate Lifeway Christian Resources. Numbers have been going down actually for more than 10 years now. And Barber was actually asked that question at a news conference after he was elected And he said tracking membership is actually complicated. And the results can be skewed because it's the actual membership versus how many people are attending church. So he was like, well, I'm not sure about the numbers. But he said, you know, as a president, he has limited influence over that. And and he said, it's it's really up to the local churches. And according to him, he said, it's the local churches that are going to have to carry the gospel forward and help us grow.
0: Hmm. I'm curious if you heard or if you saw signs of the culture that really adheres to this um, allegiance and idea of supporting a patriarchal culture and hierarchy, especially as it relates to women in leadership roles and that they're prescribed um, gender roles, for example. But at the same time, seeks to protect
1: and honor the importance of independence
0: of these messengers.
1: Yeah, I mean, just based on what I saw, of course, this is only my first SBC meeting, but, you know, many still overwhelmingly subscribe to those conservative values that you just outlined. I, I don't see any question about that. But, um, I, I did also see there were a lot of objections on the floor, uh, to Saddleback Church ordaining three women as pastors. Um, and, and that issue came up before the credentials committee, um, of, of the SBC. Uh, which looked into it and essentially said, well, we need to study what the word pastor means. Because a lot of churches these days, they, um, they have women in administrative roles and give them the title of pastors, which is more of a blessing than actually the official role of the lead pastor. So there's a difference between someone being a teaching pastor or a youth pastor as opposed to being the senior pastor or lead pastor of a church. So they said, well, let's study the meaning of the word pastor And a whole bunch of people came up to the microphones and protested that because they said, well, in the year 2000, we adopted a statement of faith that very clearly stated who a pastor is and that the woman woman is not fit to take on that role. So there were a lot of objections on the floor to Saddleback Church, ordaining three women as pastors last year. And one of the most memorable moments of the meeting, according to me, uh, and I think a lot of people agree, was when Pastor Rick Warren himself stepped up to the microphone and talked about. Um, that issue um he it was interesting how he approached it because he didn't directly say that i don't agree with the s b c on this issue, but he said he was extremely grateful for what the s b c has done for his church and how it helped him and his wife Kay grow his me- their mega church in Southern California, but it was also evident that he wasn't going to back away from what he did, so the decision of whether to kick out Saddleback Church is still up in the air as delegates decided to put it off by sending it back to the credentials committee. So it probably won't come up again until next year, but it seemed to me like there was agreement that the SPC churches should not have women in the pastor roles. I spoke to folks, other pastors um, and church board members outside the hall. And, you know, that's, that was the impression I got. People were open to having women in leadership roles Um, outside of the pastor title, but not as the lead pastor or the senior pastor of the church. Mm.
0: Sexual abuse allegations and how they were handled were definitely leading in headlines. Two years ago, I remember hearing uh, then-President J.D. Greer talk often about the need for the church to reflect on its racial history. And I'm curious, fast forward two years How is that conversation unfolding? What's the reaction been and how it's impacting younger folks who you saw at the convention?
1: There was some discussion about race, but not a whole lot, because this meeting was just so focused on the issue of mishandling sexual abuse claims. The little discussion that was had about race, the sense that I got was that people are pretty much in agreement that, you know, all races should be included in the Southern Baptist Convention but they are against, uh, you know, the issue that has been labeled as critical race theory, where um, the, the idea of systemic racism, that they're not in agreement with. So I think, um, you know, there, there's at least a first step that has been taken. And the former president, the outgoing president, Ed Litton, has been very vocal on the issue of racial reconciliation. He said that's the reason he actually stepped away from being president, because he wants to undertake a more local approach to bringing different groups of people together and listening more actively to uh, people of different races and ethnicities. So I think, I think it's definitely a conversation that's, uh, that's been started. But uh, it, it seems like it does have a long way to go. Deepa
0: Bharath is a religion reporter. Prior to joining the Associated Press Global Religion team, she was a staff writer for the Southern California News Group covering religion, race, and health for the company's 11 newspapers. Baroth has received fellowships from the International Women's Foundation, International Center for Journalists, and the Center for Health Journalism that's affiliated with USC Annenberg School. Now, among those who follow the religion-politics beat, and I'm definitely one of them, there is a lot of speculation about where people go if they choose to leave the tradition of their youth. Polling offers some indications, but not definitive answers, which is why I like to listen and share stories when I hear from guests what their search for meaning looked like. For my next guest, the decision to leave the evangelical Christianity of his youth led him to search for meaning in a different direction.
2: How do people get in touch with their their spirituality in a way that's authentic? And while for some people that includes doing some healing. Um, from past experiences in religious settings. And that certainly is something that, that I encounter with folks. And I've even had my own, you know, journey of healing myself too, you know, from, from various more evangelical Christianity, Christianities that were offered to me in the past. I didn't leave. Um, I, I chose to, to go deeper and to find my own, to find a way in my tradition. I am an ordained Christian minister, um, but I couldn't live in a Christianity, for example, that was exclusive of my brothers and sisters and siblings who are queer or gay. I couldn't live in a Christianity where um, a force that was capable of creating a world such with such beauty as ours would also be um, willing to have souls be in a place called hell for eternity. So I had to I had to decide to leave, or I had to decide to to find my way in in this tradition. And because I have a deep connection with the spiritual founder of this tradition, um. I chose to find a way. And so I went back to seminary and I began exploring and wrestling uh, with my tradition. And I came to, to terms with the fact that I want to be a part of the, the conversation in Christianity rather than seeding the conversation to those voices, which, which really in the past were, were harmful to me. I'm a, Straight cisgendered man, um but my best friend, um when we were in college years, he um came out, and what I experienced when that happened was learning about the messaging that he was receiving from the people that were from the church that we both belonged to back home, and I was just frankly, I was shocked to hear. Um, how how judgmental and how damaging um, was the messaging that he was receiving. And it put a real deep um, hurt into my own life too, because I, I loved that church. I loved those people. And then I was hearing what they were saying and I was just, I was, it was a deep wound. I eventually had to um, leave that denomination and that church and, um, through a, after a long you know series of uh, years and um, reflection and, and discernment, I, I came to the United Church of Christ because it was the denomination that offered a place of full welcome where I just couldn't find that in any other place. Mm. So that was my journey toward the United Church of Christ. The main quest that I note in people is to try to connect with a spirituality that affirms life and that affirms them as people and makes them feel more alive and centered in this world.
0: Rev. Corey Passens is an ordained Christian minister from Thurston County, Washington. When we come back, we talk about his work at Interfaith Works in Olympia, Washington, and one flagship program that is particularly unique. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Rev. Corey Passens, welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I am really excited to talk to you. I understand that you oversee interfaith programs for an organization called Interfaith Works, which serves the community in Olympia, Washington.
2: That's right. Yeah, we actually serve Thurston County, uh, which is the county in which Olympia, Washington is located. And we are a coalition of 30 plus diverse faith, and spiritual communities, and affiliated organizations. And on a programmatic level, we're the region's largest social service provider of shelter for um, vulnerable adults experiencing homelessness.
0: Is that work that you do in providing service for the unhoused, is that one of the primary programs of your organization?
2: It definitely is. We have like roughly 70 staff The vast majority of those staff are management and shelter staff for the guests.
0: And how does the Interfaith Works Camp program fit in? What draws this organization to step into the work of gathering and convening kids?
2: The Interfaith Summer Camp is part of the organization, which we call Interfaith Relations. We foster connectivity and relationship between interfaith members of our network. The Interfaith Kids Camp, um, which we call Faith Explorations, is this great partnership between the members of the communities who are part of our network. They each have delegates that come to our monthly program council meetings and the people that are kind of plugged into what we're doing as an organization. They volunteer to come and to To be with the kids and to offer various programmatic pieces for the camp. So it's actually supported by the membership of the network, too. It's really cool. Like, for example, there are people who in our network who are practitioners of universal Sufism, which is. Um, an expression of Sufism in, in the 1960s by a person named Anayat Khan who came from India to America to spread Sufi teachings and were propagated by a man named Samuel Lewis who developed the dances of universal peace. And these dances are offered to the kids at the summer camp. There are folks who come and share crafts that are tell stories maybe about their traditions or myths in their own traditions or people who do drama with the kids so it's really like supported by the membership of Interfaith Works which I think is just really cool
0: how old are the campers that come to the camp and what does an average day look like
2: they're at grades 3 to 6 the camp is is Monday through Friday so it's not you know super long it's like 9 to 3 every day The kids meet at the local Jewish synagogue in our town, which is a reconstructionist synagogue. And the woman who is the director of religious education there, her name is Catherine Carmel. She is the camp director. The kids meet at the temple. Catherine and I, we kind of curate the interfaith programming part where I help to solicit delegates from our network to offer content to the kids. And then Catherine coordinates that and also offers interfaith religious um, programming during the day so they can learn about different traditions, different leaders or people who've walked in different traditions, some of the beliefs and some of the practices and songs of different traditions. And they can just get an exposure um, to the, the breadth of the wisdom traditions of the world.
0: So are the kids coming from families that have a, a connection to Interfaith Works? How are the kids identified? Where are the kids coming from?
2: Yeah, the, it tends to be a pretty diverse group. We don't ask for religious designation for the families or the campers. Um, so I don't really have data on that. And also we just started back up last summer after taking you know a couple summers off with, with COVID and whatnot. We advertise within our network. And we have a real diverse profile of organizations that are connected with Interfaith Works, plus people who just contribute to Interfaith Works and volunteer who aren't really affiliated from a lot of different sectors. So the draw was really diverse last summer. When
0: you say diverse, what do you mean by that? It can mean many things to listeners.
2: Yeah, I mean, there were kids from a wide range of racial and cultural backgrounds um, and there were kids from a wide range of spiritual and religious backgrounds. And I think that the commitment to welcoming that Interfaith Works has fostered over the years, I think really encourages that kind of safety for spaces where there can be diversity and it can be held um, and honored and feel safe.
0: You know when you talk about um grades 3 through 6 what kind of conversations can you have with kids at that age just being mindful of where they are developmentally and also mm-hmm. mindful of their family practices and traditions that they may bring with them or not mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the camp
2: Yeah well I'll just give I'll give one example um I actually contributed one afternoon with another person from my from the spiritual community that I attend and we we showed up and we did some songs with the kids we um this was a person who's done a lot of of work choral work with kids and we sang a couple of songs and we sang um one of the songs was was in hebrew shalom havarim and when we were there we asked Catherine Carmel who was right there with us with the kids if she would talk a little bit about what the words mean to that song. So the kids, um, you know, I'm not sure how much they remember from what the words mean, but they got to actually see, you know, adults having a good conversation about what the song is. And so that's an experiential piece, you know, where they get to see um, and experience like interfaith sharing. And then one of the other songs that we we sang um, had the word God in it. And so we asked the kids, you know, what have you heard? What do you think about this word? And, you know, some, and some of the kids responded and we talked about how there's so many different ways to think about what God is and looked at all the different, you know, ways that people have, have thought about what this word is. And so I think by doing that, you know, we, we fostered a place of curiosity and you know, we modeled. That it's okay to be curious about some of these words that can that can feel like they have um, actual answers, you know, in some traditions. And we showed them that it's okay that to to explore what words like that can be about, you know. So really, it was like we're showing some culture of, of inclusivity and welcome, and we're and we're doing some real teaching about the substance of these traditions too.
0: Do you ever get questions or pushback or concerns from parents about mm-hmm. experiences that their kids might be having in this space in which you're encouraging curiosity at mm-hmm. a time when parents at home might be encouraging allegiance or loyalty to one yeah. particular family tradition. Does that is that something yeah. that comes up for you guys?
2: I can't answer whether that's ever happened or not, but I think that folks who would enroll their kids in this program understand the mission of interfaith works which is interfaith understanding and cooperation Mm -hmm. and i um i have not heard of any stories where people have expected you know singular programming given the way we advertise it and the tradition of interfaith works so really i think the answer i'm going to say is no i at least i haven't heard that from last year and i really don't I think that's been an issue, but I think it would be an outlier if it has happened.
0: What I hear you saying is that the camp is projecting inclusivity and inviting people to bring their kids as an opportunity for learning about other traditions that is inherently exposing them to different ideas. And so I suspect parents who are less inclined to do that might not attend the camp. I guess that's what I hear you saying.
2: That's what I'm saying.
0: When you are talking to third to sixth graders, like that eight to 12 group, do questions come up that you cannot answer?
2: And I know that kids at that age are super curious. I'm 100 percent sure that Catherine has has received all kinds of blunt, open questions from kids about mm-hmm. religions, because also when you're in a when you're in a place of safety to you know, to to feel safe, to to have your mind open to possibilities—that's a beautiful thing. I'm not there at every moment when that happens, but I have total trust in the way that Catherine understands. You know, the mission of of Interfaith Works, and she's been a she's also a former uh, president of the board of Interfaith Works. And she's just deeply committed. As is the local temple, it's a whole community that's committed to to relationships and to. Fostering inclusivity, I hope that that's happening, and I trust that it is, and I know that Captain's just just welcoming it when that when those moments come up.
0: Do you follow the kids? Do you have any sense if this experience, this exposure, this curiosity, singing other tradition songs, or traveling to a house of worship, or participating in an age appropriate activity that might mm-hmm. introduce them to concepts they've never heard before? What mm-hmm. happens when these kids get older? How do how do they take those mm-hmm. experiences with them?
2: I know that from last year, there are a couple of kids who are coming back this year to be counselors in training too, just from last year that want to be counselors in training from their camp experience. And I just think that's, that's kind of a testimony right there to like <laughs> them wanting to be part of it and to guide it too.
0: Are you connected to other folks like yourself around the country who are also curating interfaith camp experiences?
2: I'm not familiar with any camps in the, in the Northwest that are doing it. There's you know plenty of camps that are working from more of a, you know, singular religious identity, but right now, no, we're not in conversation with, with other interfaith camps. We are in conversation with some um, a United Church of Christ conference out in the, in the Northeast, out in your region, actually, that, that does some work with um, youth and um, they do like a, A youth sleep out for homelessness where, you know, kids who are in like middle school age do a one night sleep out where they kind of explore issues around homelessness. And we are, we are actually um, consulting with them to offer something like that here in Mm -hmm. our region in the fall too. So there's, you know, we do collaborate with other organizations and we have plenty of collaborations going on with regional interfaith groups here in the Northwest for a variety of different issues not related to interfaith summer camp when you
0: take a step back and look at the world that in its current state is incredibly mm-hmm. polarized and where religion yeah. is polarized, in part because of politics, but also because of a host of other factors. You know, the number of young people who no longer affiliate or identify as you know, associated with a religious tradition or religious um, institution is higher than it's ever been. And yeah. the number of interfaith families is higher than it's ever been, according to mm-hmm. Pew Research, which is just makes me wonder, how does your camp fit into this landscape in which there are fewer folks identifying with tradition? And so fewer folks yeah. are learning about tradition.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Pacific Northwest, too, I mean, is where where the we have the highest rate of unaffiliated people, you know, in the country. And I think, you know, from what, I, from what I've learned from, you know, my own work and in, in interfaith works, and I'm also a minister for an interfaith community here in Olympia, I have found that, you know, there's really not a need to make a case. There's just a need to make a space. And people have an interest in um, having their kids understand um, religious traditions of the world, even if they're not even if they're not sharing that tradition in their home or participating in an organized way in that religion. But just the the reality of having their kids be exposed to it and to learn about it in a a friendly environment seems really important to them. So yeah, I think it's more about making a space rather than making a case for it. Can
0: you talk a little bit about your own spiritual identity and if you had experiences going to summer camp when you were younger?
2: Yeah. My work here in Olympia is I'm half time with this organization, Interfaith Works. I'm a minister in an interfaith community here in Olympia. So with the people we were just talking about, who are unaffiliated, people who have maybe grown up in traditions um, where they're exploring beyond those traditions, you know, I work on a on a spiritual level and a and a pastoral level with with folks like that every day. So I'm really kind of meshed in that kind of relational work and really feel blessed and honored to be able to do that.
0: Rev. Corey Passons is an ordained minister with the United Church of Christ and is the Interfaith Relations Manager for Interfaith Works in Olympia, Washington, which serves Thurston County in Washington State. Coming up in future episodes, we hope to do more features about local interfaith organizations and innovative programs. So if you have one in your local community that you think we ought to profile, send me an email at amber at interfaithradio.com. Org. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected.